Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 18th, 2017. Coming up, so anyone who asks the big question, what if we're not alone? will want to tune in to hear science writer Sarah Scholes discuss her new book. It's called Making Contact, Joel Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. What is the real science of alien hunting and who's behind it? And now, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Do alien worlds have alien ice? Yes, ice. Frozen water. Now, you might think as you sip your ice-cooled drink on a hot summer day, what can be so unusual about ice? Well, it is unusual when it is in a form called Ice 7. This is a type of ice that is created in distinctly non-Earth-like environments, such as when icy planetary bodies collide. Ice 7 can be created in the lab under conditions of extreme pressure, but the transition in all such phase transitions happens so quickly and at small atomic scales that the process couldn't be studied in detail until now. Stanford researchers have developed a technique to make step-by-step movies of phase transitions and for the first time captured the freezing of water molecule by molecule into ice 7. The technique uses two lasers. First, an intense green-colored laser is beamed at a small target containing a sample of liquid water next to a diamond. The laser instantly vaporizes layers of the diamond generating a rocket-like force that compresses the water to pressures greater than 50,000 times that of Earth's atmosphere. As the water compacts, a separate laser beam arrives in a series of pulses only a femtosecond or a quadrillionth of a second long. This strobing X-ray laser snaps a set of images showing the progression of molecular changes while the pressurized water crystallizes into ice 7. The entire phase change takes only 6 nanoseconds. Delving into extraterrestrial ice types, including ice 7, will help scientists model such remote environments as comet impacts and the internal structure of potentially life-supporting water-filled moons like Jupiter's Europa and learning to manipulate those transitions might open the way to engineering materials with exotic new properties. This research was published in Physical Review Letters. When I think of which creature on the planet today is the most indestructible and will last the longest, far longer than we humans, I think of the cockroach or the mosquito. But I would be wrong. In fact, the world's toughest, most resilient species is a bear. No, not a grizzly or a polar bear. It's a tiny, eight-legged, squishy creature about a millimeter long. It's called a water bear because of the way it walks. Technically, it's actually called the tardigrade. It will survive until the sun dies, according to a team of researchers at Harvard and 
Oxford Universities. The tardigrade will survive the risk of extinction from all catastrophical astrophysical catastrophes, such as an asteroid or exploding star, or persist for at least 10 billion years, far longer than the human race. So why care about the water bear? According to the researchers, the study implies that life on Earth in general will extend as long as the sun keeps shining. It also reveals that once life emerges, it's surprisingly resilient and difficult to destroy, opening the possibility of life on other planets. Tardigrades are a type of so-called extremophile that can survive for up to 30 years without food or water, and they can endure temperatures of up to 150 degrees Celsius or 302 degrees Fahrenheit in the deep sea and even the frozen vacuum of space. The researchers have found that these water bears will likely survive all astrophysical calamities because such calamities will never be strong enough to boil off the world's oceans. The researchers noted that it's possible that there are other resilient species examples elsewhere in the universe, such as Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. That study was just published in the journal Scientific Reports. On the science event calendar, this Thursday night, July 20th, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science will host the Science Lounge. You can join in trying to solve engineering challenges with insight from living machines in a temporary exhibition called Nature's Amazing Machines. Humans have mimed and mimicked the ingenuity of the natural world to create solutions for everyday problems. Invent your own machines based on the mechanics of animals. You can do it all with a drink in hand. This event is for people age 21 or older, as alcohol will be served at a cash bar. And not with alcohol. If you haven't fully booked your kids' summer, registration is still open for some summer camps in Denver and Boulder for K-12 kids and teens in many areas of STEM. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. The camps are run through the University of Colorado Science Discovery Program, and topics range from computer programming to engineering to biology, and yes, kids will be outside a lot. For more info, go to sciencediscovery.colorado.edu. Six quavers, then pause. It's midsummer, a time when many people like to spend leisurely time outside at night, gazing at the stars and planets, when we're not swatting mosquitoes, and asking the big questions such as, am I alone? Is there life out there? I mean, way out there. And if so, is it intelligent? And how will we know? If you read Carl Sagan's novel Contact or saw the Hollywood movie based on the book, you might recall the protagonist, Ellie Arroway. She's the fictional scientist who ran a colossal project called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Dr. Arroway was loosely based on the real-life astronomer named Jill Cornell Tarter, who directed the SETI project, Searching for Intelligent Life, way beyond our world. A biography of Tartar has just been published. It's called Making Contact. 
Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it's written by Sarah Scholes. She's a Denver-based independent science journalist and has been an editor at Astronomy Magazine. And Sarah joins us now in the Boulder studio. Welcome to How on Earth, Sarah, and thanks for tackling the commuter traffic on the way. <laughs> totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, you have in your book here a compelling person, Jill Tarter, and a compelling project, SETI. So what drew you first to the book? Uh, like a lot of people, my first kind of academic or scientific introduction to SETI came through the movie Contact, which came out when I was 12 years old, uh, which for the record, the, the 20th anniversary was last week. Uh, happy birthday, Contact. <laughs> happy birthday, happy birthday. Contact. <laughs> <laughs> And I was really obsessed with it. I'd never seen science portrayed in this way as this very exciting thing asking big questions. And um, so then a few years later, I found out that, that this Ellie Arroway character in the movie was based on a real person named Jill Tarter. And then a few years after that, I happened to be working at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia. Uh, it was my first week on the job. I didn't know how to do anything yet. And my boss said, can you drive a bus? And I said, nope. And she said, Learn fast. do it anyway. And uh, it was the 50th anniversary then of the first study project. And they were having a conference at this observatory. And uh, Jill Tarter was there and she left her purse on this bus and I gave it back to her. So this is a long story, but it ends up that uh, a few years later, I was an editor at Astronomy Magazine wanting to write a book. Uh, I thought about what had first inspired me about astronomy, and it was this movie and this person. And so I wrote her an email and said, hey, I returned your purse one time. Can I write your biography? And uh, so, she said yes. So so a purse allowed you to pursue Jill. Oh, sorry. No, indeed, no, no. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry about that <laughs> one. Um, I, I want to talk more about Jill, but before we do that, let's step back a little bit for our listeners. People have heard what SETI is. But what is it? They may have heard that it's searching for little green men, but how do you do that? What is SETI? Today, SETI has a few incarnations. It's mostly looking for radio signals that would come from alien technology. So scientists use radio telescopes, which look a lot like satellite dishes, that the old-time satellite dishes you might have had in your yard. And they're looking for what they call narrowband signals, which are radio waves that just come at a very small range of frequencies, kind of like a radio station. And that is evidence of extraterrestrial technology. The universe, stars, and galaxies can't make signals that are that compressed. And so we think if our technology works that way, maybe alien technology works that way. And then uh, more recently, scientists have also started to look for alien lasers, which sounds very sci-fi, but is real science. And what is an alien laser? Uh, it's like a human laser, but it comes from aliens. And um, we have this idea that, you know, we have lasers that for brief moments can outshine the sun. They just produce hugely bright signals, and so scientists are looking for these very brief, extremely bright alien laser pulses. So give me a little primer on kind of the difference between radio astronomy, which has been going on for a long time. In fact, Joel Parker here is with Southwest Research Institute and has been doing a lot of astronomy, as many scientists have, and then what some would call sort of the verging into sci-fi or the actual search for some other 
critters, some other existence. We're not talking just molecules. Sure. Uh, well, in traditional radio astronomy, scientists look for signals that come from things like, uh, you know, supernovae or galaxies or uh, just the molecules that exist in between the stars and space. And these all emit radio waves kind of in the same way that they emit light, but it just has a longer wavelength. And then um, when scientists are doing SETI, they're looking for things that don't come from those those natural physical objects, but instead come from biological beings that have maybe built some kind of technology. And so a lot of a SETI scientist's job is to separate what is coming from this natural physical universe and what is coming from ET. And I know there are a bunch of different stations or bases, some using uh, telescopes that are used for other things, but as the opening scene in Contact showed that um, one of the big ones, right? Or is it the biggest one in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo? Uh, it was the biggest one until very recently. China finished uh, a telescope called the 500-meter aperture spherical telescope. I hope I got that right. Catchy. The FAST. Yeah. <laughs> the astronomers know, know, they're only good at acronyms. They're not good at the words behind the acronyms. <laughs> but uh, Arecibo up until then was the very biggest in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's still one of the key places where they're doing this form of yeah, astronomy? Yes, uh, the University of California, Berkeley, runs a SETI program that, that uh, uses instruments at Arecibo, and um, another project called Breakthrough Listen is a new endeavor that's funded by uh, a man named Yuri Milner, who has a lot of money and has poured $100 million into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and he's mostly using the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and a telescope in Australia called the Parks Radio Telescope. And in terms of other funders, like SETI, a lot of it is privately funded. And maybe give a little history of that, because it seems like there's been a lot of government skepticism or maybe covetousness. But um, <laughs> sounds like um, Paul Allen from Microsoft is a big funder, right? Yeah. So uh, historically, the people doing the most study have been at uh, a place called the SETI Institute, which aptly named. Um, they The people who worked there started as... Um, NASA-funded scientists, and they had a project called the High Resolution Microwave Survey, which looks for exactly the kind of radio signals we were talking about before. Um, but then, uh, the you know, politicians very much like to fund things that will help people on Earth right now, or within the the terms of their uh, uh, appointment as politicians. And so it's not it's not always been a popular political venture. And so the year after NASA's study project got started in 1992, Congress completely cut the funding for it and um, determined that no one from the government should ever fund study. And so these scientists went off and started their own private project called Project Phoenix. And um, since then, the, that institute has also built the Allen Telescope Array named after one Paul Allen, who has given a lot of money to SETI, and they are still doing that from very far northern California. Although it was still not a completely smooth sailing, funding-wise. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I skipped over <laughs> a lot of bumps in the road in that telling. <laughs> it's, ne- it's never been easy. I mean, it's not... SETI is... Uh, not something that's going to get an answer tomorrow necessarily, although it could. It could happen in a hundred years, could happen in a thousand years, or never. And so it's hard to convince someone to give their money to a project that doesn't necessarily have an answer that we can find at all. But don't, even though the answer may be far off, or the answer may be no, right? We may never hear a signal. Uh, don't the uh, the funders understand that if there is a signal, how significant that'll be? There was 
a great quote which you mentioned uh, in your book about uh, how the probability of success is difficult to estimate, but if we never search, the chance of success is zero. So that seems like a compelling argument. I love that quote. I yeah, do too. It comes from the very first, the very first academic study paper ever published in 1959 in Nature. And I don't know. Sometimes I wish more Nature papers were still written with such great philosophical yes. statements. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that I think that you know, it's it's a high risk project. You might not find an answer, but if you do, it's going to be one of the biggest discoveries that humans have ever made. And uh, in my opinion, that's worth investing resources. And and I think in in the opinion of the people who have invested, their their resources are a lot more substantial than mine. And so. <laughs> and have there been any potential signals? Anything that, you know, raised the hair on some of the astronomers who are listening in? There have been a few uh, false alarms. The, the, in the SETI Institute search one time, they accidentally detected a solar telescope, an orbiting thing that was looking at the sun. Um, and that looks very intelligent and like it comes from technology because it does. It comes from our technology. And for, for a couple of days, it fooled them into thinking that it might be a signal. And uh, uh, I know uh, the wow signal which came in 1977 from the Big Ear Observatory in Ohio, was uh, an anomalous, very bright radio signal that no one knew where it came from or what it was, and it, it remains a mystery today. And so astronomers who do this kind of work are always on the lookout for something weird. That, now, the, sorry, the, I was going to say the wow signal was actually a, a good example of the kind of thing they're looking for because it was very narrow in frequency. Um, it was very unusually bright. Uh, you had a good uh, description in your book at how faint the uh, radio sky is, for example, and the noise involved, right? What was it about uh, cell phone? Yeah, if you put a cell phone on the moon, it is brighter than all but two things that are in the sky, just because when radio waves leave something, a supernova or whatever it may be, they're very bright, but then space is very large and they dim as they cross it, just like car headlights dim as they get farther away from you. And so by the time they get here, they're just so weak that even the worst cell phone can outshine them. That's even without the flashlight little <laughs> app on the phone. Exactly. Traveling all that way in space. Seems okay. like a waste of space, right? <laughs> they have so, a hard life. So I want to know, I mean, for not just skeptics, but those in Congress or Paul Allen-like funders, for that matter, who are like, we have a ton of problems here on Earth and a lot of things to figure out about our Earth. Not just our Earth, but so what? So what is a pitch? What would Jill... Tartar's pitch be now for continuing? Whether it's, gee, what have the biggest discoveries been so far? What have they taught us? Not whether there is or isn't actual intelligent life way out there, but about ourselves and how we've evolved or what? I think that's something that Jill Tartar has had to think a lot about as she has retired and is getting older and has to think, you know, we might not find the thing that I've been looking for for my whole life. So what else can we take from this search? And uh, I think what she would say, she has uh, an idea called the earthling meme, which is that we are all people on this planet uh, and we are a lot more similar to each other, no matter how different we are, than we are going to be 
compared to aliens. And so that should help us get some perspective on uh, that. She, she's very uh, anti, anti-war and, <laughs> you know, understandably. And that, uh, that, that should unite us, the idea that the universe is big. We are a lot alike. Aliens are very different. And we need to take care of each other and this planet. And that thinking about SETI and thinking about the size of the universe the length of cosmic time and what else might be out there can give people a little perspective outside of the daily life that we kind of get stuck in. That, that you had a line in your book that SETI trivializes the differences among humans, uh, differences, though, that we're willing to spill blood over, which mm-hmm. I think is a very insightful statement. Uh, if you just joined us, uh, I am Joel Parker. My host is Susan Moran, and you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We are talking with Sarah Skolas, science journalist and author of the book, Making Contact, Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we've talked a lot about SETI. Let's talk a little about Jill. Jill is the storyline in your book. So who is Jill Tarter? What is the line that got her into SETI? She started out wanting to be an engineer and then thought that engineering had too many rules and she didn't want to follow them, which if you ever meet Jill Tarter, <laughs> will become apparent pretty quickly. And uh, she took an astronomy class about star formation and started thinking about big questions like how did all this stuff in the universe get here? How did it become stars? How did planets become planets? Um, and then one day when she was uh, in, in graduate school, someone brought her this NASA report. NASA had done the first scientific report ever on could we actually do a scientific search for aliens? And her professor wanted her uh, labor, really, on this project. And so he brought her this report and said, read this. And she stayed up all night. And it was a question that she hadn't really thought about since she was a kid. And this made her think of it for the first time. And she really connected to the idea of, are we alone? Why are we here? In the same way that astronomy had first inspired her and just decided to join the search right then. So on that note, who actually said, was it Carl Sagan? Was it Jodie Foster in her character Ellie? Was it originally Jill Tarter? Because I've heard this from her in her TED Talks. And that is, you know, regarding this question, are we alone and how would we know? And it is, if there's just us, that seems an awful waste of space. I believe... It's beautiful, but who did really say that? <laughs> they all said it. But. I believe it first came from Carl Sagan's book, Contact. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't think that Jill Tarter said it first, but she has definitely taken it on as a mantle of sorts. Right. I didn't hear attribution in the TED Talk, so I wasn't yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's mm-hmm. usually so, so, again, another little primer, if you could lay out the landscape or more the space scape. I mean, we're talking about a lot of space out there where there could potentially be intelligent life. So our galaxy contains, what, 100 billion planets? And many earthly organisms, like those water bear, perhaps, the extremophiles, living on ice, boiling water, miles under the earth or sea, emit toxic chemicals and radiation. Um, what, what sort of, we know there's a lot of space there, but what evidence are we looking for and what evidence has been found of that kind of life? Here on Earth or on other, other, other planets? Elsewhere. Well, I think that finding these extreme organisms on Earth on all these crazy places you describe and finding planets has really opened up the search space for astronomers. When they started doing study, they didn't know if there were planets 
at all? Like, would aliens have anywhere to live? Um, how could they form? And knowing that life can live in so many places that we would find unbearable here on Earth has shown astronomers that they, they could live on planets that we thought were totally inhospitable. And so um, astronomers recently at the SETI Institute have been focusing just on finding, uh, on searching very nearby stars because they, they kind of don't want to make assumptions about what kind of stars or even necessarily what kinds of planets could host life just because the possibilities seem so open. So I think uh, we haven't found anything yet, but we're trying. And do you have hope that sometime in your lifetime, you're a lot younger than <laughs> Jill Tartar now, got a few decades on her, um, that th there will be some discovery and that we will know it? Oh, I think that there is a good possibility that telescopes uh, that are not necessarily SETI telescopes, but are just traditional astronomy telescopes, will be able to find evidence of microbial life if it's out there. They can look at the atmospheres of planets and see how life might have changed their composition, like based on the ratios of oxygen and methane and things like that. And I think that that is a, a real possibility in terms of SETI and technology searching. I really, I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful. I think it would be great. I think it would have been great if it had happened before the book came out too. But uh, <laughs> we can't, we little, can't all have everything. Hey, but at right. least you're on the 20th anniversary of the movie. True. That's not True. quite a sexy totally though. Totally unplanned. <laughs> can, can you tell us if a signal is found? What's the process, uh, you know, from a potential, is this a signal to, oh my gosh, it's a signal. What's, what's the protocol? <laughs> well, first, uh, what I know the most about is the SETI Institute's um, protocol for how to do it. And so when, when they see something that looks suspicious, they will actually check it five separate times before any human even gets alerted for it. The, the software will see the signal go away from the signal, come back, see if it's still there, and go away and come back five times just to make sure it's not just a blip from a satellite or your microwave or some or that cell phone on the moon, whatever. <laughs> and uh, once they do that, then they'll call another observatory in a different place to make sure that they see the signal coming from the same spot. Um, and after that, it's kind of fair game. They send what they call a telegram to other astronomers. I'm not actually sure if it's a real telegram. <laughs> and uh, then, yeah, then the, they don't want to keep it a secret. I know a lot of people think that if we that we have found aliens and they wouldn't tell everybody, but they want everyone to know. And so then it's field day. Well, thank you so much. So much more on this topic we will revisit down the road. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. That was journalist Sarah Scholes, author of the new book, Making Contact. Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, Sarah will be speaking about her book in Denver and or Boulder in the fall, so we'll let you know down the road when the dates are set. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and additional music from the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm... Joel Parker. <laughs>